Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I discuss the many types of risks investors face. From the permanent loss of capital to market volatility to investment strategy risk and more, Risk can often be hard to define, but there are some common sense ways to think about it and defend against these risks as they emerge, and we discuss some of these ideas in this podcast. We appreciate all the great comments and feedback as of late. Please enjoy this discussion around investing risks. Okay, today we're going to talk about a very important subject in investing, and that is risk. And we're going to sort of, I think, break this discussion up into two different parts. We're going to talk about the different types of risks there are and the the risks that investors should be aware of. And then we'll spend a little bit of time on the back half talking about some of the ways that we've tried to define risk for our clients, the people that we manage money through, and specifically when developing investment strategies that I think are a little bit unique to us. But maybe to start, Jack, um, you wrote an article recently, um, and it was titled, um, What is Risk? And in it, you walked through, tried to walk through the different types of risk risks that are out there that investors should be aware of. So maybe to start, if you want to kind of walk in those five different points. So to start, maybe walk through some of those, and, and I'll try to build off of what you're saying here. Yeah, you know, like you said, everybody wants to try to define risk. And, you know, those of us that are quants, we use terms like standard deviation. You know, we'll look at volatility to define risk. And, you know, then someone like Warren Buffett will come in and say, well, you know, volatility is not risk. You know, risk is the, the, you know, the risk that you're going to permanently lose your capital. And, you know, I can sit through anything and I don't need to worry about volatility. And so it's just a very, very hard concept to define. And, and part of the reason is because risk in many ways is in the, eye, in the eye of the beholder. So whoever the person is taking that risk their definition is going to be different than another person because risk is really about what causes an investor to panic or what causes an investor to make a mistake. And so for every person, that's a different thing. And so it's really useless to try to sit here and say, here's the exact definition of risk because it's very unclear, but it's also very individualized to each person. And you you tried to tackle these by breaking them up. So the first type of risk that you identified was this risk of permanent loss of capital. Yeah, and this gets back to Buffett's idea, which is that, you know, Buffett doesn't consider volatility to be risk. Buffett has an, an, basically an unlimited time frame. He'll sit through 50 years of underperformance if he has to. And so he's not worried about the day-to-day volatility. He's worried, I'm going to lose my money permanently. And so permanent loss of capital is something like, you know, if, if I were to make a very aggressive move and I was to lose so much of my portfolio that I can't recover from it, well, that's, that's a huge risk, and that's a risk I'm probably not going to be able to bounce back with. And, you know, you, you see some of that right now with what people are doing with options, with GameStop and things like that. You know, if you're putting a large portion of your portfolio in those types of things, you definitely have the risk that you're going to lose a huge portion of your capital. So this is probably one of the biggest risks because it's one of the, one of the risks that you can't come back from if, you know, if you're on the wrong side of it. Yeah, I mean, that's probably, you know, if you get wiped out in a trade, I mean, some of these hedge funds that were short GameStop, you know, some of these funds needed, you know, billions and billions to get to get bailed out and they may have even got wiped out. So, you know, I think you've got to be careful with 
uh, with this one in particular, just because if you lose all or most of your capital, you know, like you said, there's a chance you can't come back. Whereas some of these other risks like volatility, um, which is your next point, that may that may also be bad and throw you off your game plan. But that's different than, you know, the idea of losing, you know, most or all of your capital. Volatility is what really brings in the behavioral aspects I was talking about before. You know, volatility, if you're Warren Buffett and you're not going to panic, volatility is not a risk because I can endure whatever volatility I have to to get to my long-term goals. But if you're a regular investor, volatility is going to scare you. Volatility is going to cause you to abandon your investment strategy or to go to cash or something like that. And so volatility, as much as it's not a risk to Warren Buffett, it is a risk to your average person because volatility leads to behavioral problems and it leads to mistakes. And so anything that can lead to mistakes can be a significant risk. So I think although risk is, you know, volatility is not risk for Buffett, I think it is for your average investor because it will lead them a lot of times to make bad decisions. One of the things that I think that's happening now in the market is you have a lot of retail investors, a lot of new investors, and they're getting the volatility mostly to the upside. My fear or concern is that when we get a correction or even a bear market, you know, the downside volatility is going to really be painful for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see. But I think generally speaking, the more volatile a strategy is, the more chances there are that an investor may deviate from it. And the more chances they are, they're going to deviate from it. The more chances there are, they're going to make the you know, the worst decision at the bad time when a strategy is down or when stocks are down. So yeah, volatility is something that you just got to be mindful of and um, aware of and understand, I think, going in when um, following an investment strategy. Um, your next um, type of risk was sort of deviating or deviation from the overall market. Yeah. And this basically, this applies to active strategies. And so a lot of people think the biggest thing that leads investors to make mistakes is losing their money. And I don't think it is. I think the biggest thing that leads to investors making mistakes is not making money when other people are. And so if you think about value in the past decade, that's a perfect example of this deviating from the market risk. You know, in order to follow value over the long term, I have to be able to look very different than the market in the short term. And I have to be able to endure long periods where I'm underperforming. And so, and I think for a lot of people, that's a lot harder to do than to actually lose money when everybody else is also losing money. I think that whole being different than everybody else is, is one of the greatest risks. Yeah, and to that point, I mean, we just had Jack Vogel on the podcast and he was talking about trend following over the last decade. And what's interesting is trend following is supposed to, if you lay a trend following strategy on an equity portfolio, you know, it's supposed to basically reduce the downside risk. So it's meant to be there to try to get you out of, let's say the market before the worst of a bear market. But the tough thing with trend following, as he pointed out, is that, you know, if you've implemented a trend following strategy, you've had massive deviations from the market here because the thing has gotten most of the time. It's been all these signals since the financial crisis. I mean, pretty much investors have gotten whipsawed. So that's a kind of a good example of where that deviation from the market can actually be really painful and hard for people to um, understand and, and really accept. Um, the next uh, type of risk was investment strategy risk. Yeah, so in addition to the risk of deviating from the market and panicking at the wrong time when I'm following value or, or any other factor strategy, there's another risk, which is just that the thing won't work anymore. Um, you know, I'm obviously a big believer in value, and I believe the short-term period is just going to be a blip on the radar in terms of the long term for it. But there's there's obviously significant risks that value just won't work anymore. And so there's a risk that as, as a value investor, you'll sit here and follow this strategy for a decade or 15 years or 20 years, and it just never comes back. You know, that, that outperformance or that excess return you're expecting just never comes. So whenever you are an active investor, you, you face this investment strategy risk that your investment strategy just won't work. And then the last type of risk was the risk of bad luck. 
Yeah, and you know, this is this is probably one of the worst ones because you, you can do everything right and things can just not break your way. And so a good example of this is if I retired right at the start of the 2008 bear market or something like that. Um, so I start withdrawing money right when the market has that kind of a drawdown. That's called sequence risk. And it's the risk that I will have really bad returns right at the beginning of a period where I'm drawing down money. And so you can do everything right. You can have the perfect plan. You can have calculated a great withdrawal rate that's going to withstand the vast majority of situations. And then you have a 50% decline right at the beginning. And that can make you completely have to rethink your plan. So sometimes you do everything right and just bad luck comes in and, you know, and causes problems for you. Yeah. And it was really, if you think back to like 2000, those investors that were invested, let's say in the broader market, you know, you had the dot-com boom, you had a 50% pullback in stocks. And then, you know, it took a long time to claw back. And then they were hit on the back end of that decade in 2008 and nine with the financial crisis. So that's, you know, decades like that don't happen very much, but certainly for an investor that goes through that type of decade, with stocks, it can really wreak havoc on one's portfolio and its ability to, um, you know, be something over time. Um, so yeah, that's sequence risk is tough. It's tough to it's tough to manage that. I think diversification certainly helps. Um, so I think you wanted to just one one of the things when we had Jim O'Shaughnessy on. He sort of talked about I think two points of failure that investors face, and these I think relate to this discussion around risk. So do you want to kind of get into that? Yeah, you know, when we try to look at risk in terms of, you know, building portfolios for investors, what we want to do is we want to go back to the topic of behavior and we want to say, what would cause an investor to make a mistake, you know, versus sitting here and running all these advanced models with all these statistical concepts. You know, what we want to do is try to look at it at a practical level and say, what would cause an investor to make a mistake in their portfolio? And then how can we build portfolios that will minimize those mistakes. And so getting back to what O'Shaughnessy said, O'Shaughnessy talked about investors having two points of failure. One point of failure is that they're gonna panic when the market's down, when they have significant losses, and they're gonna abandon their investment strategy. The other is that they're gonna panic when, the, when they're underperforming the market as a whole, and they're gonna abandon their investment strategy. And so when we look at risk, we look at those two things, the risk of loss and the risk of underperformance, and we try to quantify them in ways that can help us build portfolios for investors. So to take, to take them one at a time, first looking at losses, you know, so you could look at a concept, for instance, with, with a given strategy is, uh, you know, the percentage of time it loses X percent. So the percentage of time this strategy loses 10% or the percentage of time it loses 20, 30 or 40 or 50%. And you can give that information to investors and sort of give them an idea of what to expect in terms of here are the losses you might see. And also maybe to, to combine strategies together so that those periods are not as severe as they otherwise would be in terms of these actual drawdowns. Um, and another way you can look at that type of risk is you can look at worst case scenarios. And so one of the things we started doing a while back with clients is we started giving them a document when they came on saying basically here, as part of following these focused factor strategies we run, here are all the terrible things that are going to happen to you probably, you know, if you invest with us for the next 20 years. And, you know, things like significant underperformance, which we'll talk about in a second, or the biggest market declines we've seen in history. You know, we want to put those things out front so that investors are aware of those. And that doesn't mean they're going to be able to get through them, but it just means we, we want to look at the percentage chances of these types of things happening and put them in front of people so they understand the, the likelihood it might happen. I remember what Jim O'Shaughnessy said in the podcast he did with us when he was talking about the way that they build factor-based strategies and how if it was for him, he would want to be taking you know, ultra focus, the highest risk, the most factor exposure he can get to try to really, you know, give his portfolio and give his investments a great chance for long-term market outperformance. But he also 
and they also understand, like we understand that when you construct these strategies and build these strategies, the vast majority of people just aren't set up to handle that type of uh, deviation from the market, volatility, downside risk when they come. And so to your point, if you're, if like us, we do run relatively concentrated, I guess, stock portfolios, if somebody's invested in all stock portfolio, but we try to, you know, do things to, to help the client understand the realities of this so that they hopefully are prepared when those times come and they can stick with the strategies um, over time. So just in terms of the other, I guess, thing that we do uh, in terms of looking at these periods of underperformance over various time frames and seeing how what percentage of time a portfolio may underperform and also the degree of um, underperformance versus the market. So do you want to talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so we, you know, we kind of looked at this when we started the same way Jim looked at it, which is, you know, we wanted to build the highest octane focused factor portfolios we could conceivably build. And when you do that, what you realize is a lot of people just can't stick with those strategies. And so then we sort of took a step back and said, all right, what is leading people to abandon these strategies? What are the thing, what are the situations where they might abandon those strategies and how can we quantify that? So when we're combining things like value and momentum together, we can focus on those things that would lead to mistakes. And so, like you said, a good example of that is for every strategy we run, we try to look at the percentage of time over a one year period it underperforms the market. So if you look at any given year, you have 240 overlapping one year periods from that date to that same date the previous year. So if you look at your entire history, you have a very large number of one year periods. For any strategy or combination of strategies, you can look at that and say, at any given time, what are the chances an investor will look at this strategy and he'll look at his previous one year performance and it'll be behind the market. Because if I can optimize for that, you know, the likelihood of outperformance over that one year period to be as much as possible, I can limit the risk that somebody's going to abandon the strategy. And I can do the same exact thing at three and five years. And that doesn't mean these strategies won't have three and five year periods they underperform. They will. It, ju it just means that I, when I'm looking at creating a blending blended portfolio, I can try to optimize to make those one, three and five year outperformance rates as strong as possible so that people won't abandon the strategies because they're underperforming. And another way to flip it and to look at it is to say, I can look at not the percentage chance of underperformance, but I can also look at the degree of underperformance. And so one of the metrics we keep is what percentage of the time is this portfolio more than 5% behind the market in any given one year period? What percentage of time is it more than 10% behind the market in any given one year period? Because those are that magnitude of, of underperformance can be what really leads to mistakes. So we also want to understand, you know, if we're going to get really great returns, but we're going to have periods where we're 30% behind the market in any given year, most people aren't going to be able to stick with that. So we need to, we need to avoid those types of situations. And then the final one we look at is just the absolute maximum underperformance in any one given one year. So what is the worst case scenario for this model or combination of models in terms of the, if you invested on the exact worst day, what would your one year performance be relative to the market? What would be that gap? And we're trying to minimize that gap as much as possible to try to limit the worst case type scenario. A lot of times with different types of strategies, you have different, uh, I guess, market regimes and different approaches um, can work very differently in different types of markets. So one thing that I know we've talked about is, you know, when we first started tracking these strategies, we were, I would say, mostly in the value type of style, value factor, running like a Benjamin Graham or Joel Greenblatt or even Warren Buffett, which is quality and value. So we were sort of more tilted towards 
um, I would say, value strategies. And we still have a lot of value strategies, but over time we've sort of diversified and added more different strategies to our strategy lineup. But one of the things that I know we've talked about, which is maybe a little bit of a limitation in looking at data sometimes is when we look at like some of those statistics that you were just talking about and we look over the last, let's say 10 years, we know that this has been a period where growth and momentum and probably low vol to some extent has really been performing well. And so the value strategies may not have been able to contribute positively to some of that, but you kind of need to think about that, I think a little bit in, in the sense that, you know, you can have a set of data that may guide you into one sort of view, but you also need to understand the type of market it was and um, what strategies were working and what strategies may not have been working. Yeah, you can't just use numbers for this. You have to use an intuitive process as well. So for instance, to your point, if I looked at our numbers and just carved out the past 10 years and didn't go any further than that, and I said, all right, give me the, give me the optimal strategies that underperform the least over one, three, and five years and have the lowest magnitude of underperformance, I'm going to end up with a momentum model coupled with a growth model, maybe throw a low vol model in there. But that's not going to tell me what might happen in the future. I mean, I, I need to use much longer periods. And I also need to say, when, when you use a process like this, you need to look at what it spits out and say, is this intuitive to me? You know, do I have a growth model and a value model and maybe a model that looks for high quality companies? I, I want to have models that make sense that they would be uncorrelated to each other versus just looking at, say, the past 10 years and, you know, ending up with a completely wrong result of, you know, growth and momentum should be, you know, the dominant force in my portfolio and I should have no value. I mean, maybe that'll be the way it works in the future. But if you look at the longest periods you can in investing, that's not the case. You want to have value. You want to have momentum. You know, it's one of the few free lunches in investing is taking factors like value and momentum and combining them together because they have comparable long-term returns, but they have their outperformance occurs at very different times. So you get a, a return, you know, a portfolio with comparable returns with much less risk when you combine the two together. Yeah, and there's quite a bit of evidence to show that like value and momentum when combined together over over long periods of time, you know, they tend to balance balance each other out. Um, so, and you know, I know one of the things that we do try to do is when we work with investors, we're trying to um, obviously understand their risk tolerance and what they're seeking. And, you know, there's the ability to do, you know, basically develop portfolios that are right for them um, and are best given their individual risk tolerance. And they're not always all long only equity portfolios, you know. There's other ways that you can um, mitigate this risk uh, by using things like trend following, by blending obviously stocks with other asset classes, or um, even in the case, and we've talked about it in another podcast, is you know using something like momentum to rotate among asset classes and then maybe move out when things get bad. So there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can use systematic strategies to sort of mitigate risk. I think our point here today was to really just talk about the different types of risks that investors are exposed to. And then really, I think, hopefully to share with you the the ways that, you know, you may want to look at evaluating risk that go beyond just the numbers, like Jack said. It, it goes to, you know, how does this investment strategy work in the real world? And what are the, um, what are the, what are the reasons why an investor may abandon it? And then trying to think about that when developing a strategy for an investor. 
Yeah, you know, we started this podcast by saying there's no way to define risk. So, you know, we certainly don't want to end it by saying our way of defining risk is the right way. There, there's a million different ways to define risk. And, and like we said, a lot of it is in the eye of the beholder and a lot of it is about each particular investor. You know, for instance, if you're an index investor, everything we just went over is probably not all that relevant to you because these percentage chances of underperforming over one, three and five years don't even apply to you. That's not a risk you're even taking. And that, that's probably what most investors should do. So there's no perfect way to define risk, but I just, I think it's helpful to make maybe look at different ways to do it and look at investor behavior and look at the reasons investors make mistakes and use those reasons to create your risk model. And that, that's sort of what we've done with our system. All right. I think that's a good way to end it. Thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbonell. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.